number of reasons, both philosophically and theologically, that lead to the conclusion that God is a metaphysically necessary being. One would be the very concept of God is the concept of a greatest conceivable being. If there was anything that was uh, greater than God, then that would be God. So by the very concept of God, God is the greatest conceivable being. Now, a greatest conceivable being would be a being which exists necessarily, not one which exists contingently. So the very concept of God, I think, entails that God is metaphysically necessary. In addition to that, several of the arguments for God's existence issue in the existence of such a metaphysically necessary being. For example, the argument from contingency says that anything that exists has an explanation of its existence. And that explanation will either be in an external cause or else it will be in the necessity of the thing's own nature. Now, that implies that uh, all contingent things will have causes of their existence. But God cannot have a cause of his existence, otherwise he wouldn't be God. That means that God exists by a necessity of his own nature, and that therefore God exists necessarily. Or again, the moral argument uh, roots morality and moral values in God. But moral values, at least some of them, seem to exist necessarily. There's no possible world in which it is morally justified to torture little children uh, because it's fun. Um, there are moral truths that hold in every possible world. And if morality is grounded in God, that implies, therefore, that God exists in every possible world and is, therefore, a metaphysically necessary being. So for all of those philosophical reasons, I think we have good grounds for thinking that if there is a God, he must be metaphysically necessary in his being. Theologically speaking, I think this only makes good sense. God is a being which is worthy of worship a most perfect being. And I think that a being that exists necessarily is more worthy of worship than one that just sort of happens to exist, that accidentally exists. So theologically, the concept of metaphysically necessary existence also seems uh, to be a richer uh, concept of God than the concept of a God who just happens to be there by accident. Just this past afternoon, Pastor Nathaniel and Pastor Brad and I were in my office and we spent about an hour and a half or so with a gentleman who is at the end of his rope and we were able to say, God is at the end of your rope. And we listened to his story and then he listened to God's story in Jesus Christ and he is ripe. Uh, he said that he'd be back tonight for the men's group. I've alerted the, the men that he'll be there. And so what we're involved in, folks, is vitally, vitally important. God is real. How do we know? God has something to say to this man who's at the end of his rope. But is it true? Is it true? Well, let's pray for him. And then let's pray for me. Because this is the argument that will take you to the end of your rope. <laughs> so let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the gospel. And that it's true. Lord, I pray for the gentleman we spoke to this afternoon. I pray that your spirit would continue to work in him as we saw so visibly in our office this afternoon. And I thank you that your love is real and you are real. 
and that we have something to stand on as believers. Lord, I pray also that you would help me tonight. Uh, Lord, I know it's not my brothers and sisters in Christ here tonight who are on the hot seat. It's me because I have the burden of explaining, well, what your word says is just about inexplicable. So I pray for your grace and your truth and your spirit to be here tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we come now to the fourth and final argument of our natural theology arguments. Uh, We have looked at, so far, the cosmological argument, which is a family of arguments um, that tries to argue that there must be a first cause or a sufficient reason for the existence of the world, the cosmos. The world is not self-sufficient in itself. It's finite. It's dependent. It's changing. And such a universe demands an infinite and necessary being as its ultimate cause. And so we looked at the cosmological argument. Then we move to the teleological argument, which is a family of arguments that basically says the universe exhibits incredible complexity and fine-tuning. And this fine-tuning cannot be plausibly explained away by necessity of nature or or, um, chance or anything like that. And so, therefore, there must be an intelligent designer behind the design. Whether you look through the microscope or the telescope, you see evidence for design. What explains that? What is the best explanation? What explanation has the best explanatory power and sufficient power to explain the effect we see? And so we looked at, secondly, the teleological argument. Then we looked at the the anthropological argument. That's the technical name. It's also called the moral argument, and that's a family of arguments that tries to demonstrate the existence of God on the basis of our common moral experience around the globe, that universally there is a sense of moral obligation or oughtness inside human beings. Um, And that suggests very strongly the existence of a moral law inside people by which they distinguish right from wrong. And the the presence of such a moral law would also suggest the existence of a moral lawgiver. And we understand that moral lawgiver to be God. Well, we come then to argument number four, the ontological argument. The ontological argument. I'm going to guess at least for half of us or maybe two-thirds of us that's a new word. Um, When asked which of the natural theology arguments he thought was most effective in a university setting, the Christian philosopher and apologist William Lane Craig, whom we just heard in that clip, he said this, I think the moral argument is the most effective. I personally, Craig saying now, I personally like the scientific and philosophical arguments, by which he means I personally like the cosmological, teleological, and ontological arguments the best. But I find that those don't really move students as much as the moral argument, which says that apart from God, there is no absolute foundation for moral values. Therefore, if you're going to affirm the value of things like tolerance and love and fair play, the rights of women and so forth, you need to have a transcendent anchor point. You need to have God. And Craig continues, I think students are so familiar with the idea God is dead, therefore everything is relative, that they, res- they resonate with the moral argument when you tell them that apart from God there are no moral absolutes. 
And then you just help them see how horrible the world would be without moral absolutes and that they themselves, if they look at their own conscience introspectively, already affirm moral absolutes despite the lip service that they might give to relativism. So this argument, the moral argument, has tremendous appeal to students. It is the one to which they respond. I would agree with that. I think William Lane Craig is right. That one touches us emotionally, not just intellectually. Now, I think it's fascinating. Craig goes on to say this. Undoubtedly, I think that the ontological argument would be the least effective argument for God. I've been so tempted, though, to use the ontological argument in a debate someday. I think it's a sound argument. I think it's a good argument for God, says Craig. But whenever I try to explain it, it's so abstract and so far over people's heads that in the end, I, uh, I scratch the argument because nobody ever understands it. That one doesn't work very well, but I'm sorely tempted to try it someday. Now, after he said this, he actually did go on in a debate. I saw him and he used this argument and they applauded him for it said it's the only time he ever made an argument and got applauded for it, and it's the hardest, most abstract one. Now, I think Craig is right. The ontological argument has merit, but it can be difficult to understand. And so, uh, why in the world are we doing it then tonight? Uh, Pastor Jason and I almost nixed it. But for the sake of completion, um, we thought we would uh, we would include it here tonight for for your consideration, and we're going to leave it to you to try to understand it, and and then to evaluate it. Is it cogent? Is it really effective? I personally think it is. I think it's a good argument, uh, and so I want you to again don't read ahead. We're just going to go slowly tonight as possible, <laughs> as possible, and we'll try to develop this argument. As, uh, as some of our ancestors in the faith developed it and then interacted with uh, their colleagues and skeptics of their day. Now, in getting started, by way of overview, let's, let's look at this word ontology. The word ontological comes from the Greek word ontos, which means being or existence. Or sometimes it's translated reality, but for the most part, it's translated being. And it was first presented in the Middle Ages by the Benedictine monk Anselm. If you've heard of Saint Anselm, this is the one. Um, he developed the ontological argument, which tries to demonstrate the existence of God from the concept of God alone. In other words... It argues that once you understand the concept of God, then you will see that God must exist, that his non-existence is, in fact, impossible, because the concept of God is that of a maximally great and eternally necessary being. That's an overview of the ontological argument. Now, as you can probably tell already, um, the ontological argument is abstract, it's complex, it's philosophical, and it is vexing. For nearly a thousand years, it has been presented, dismissed, and then sharpened, represented, redismissed, resharpened, and so forth and so on. Um, it has been both revered and ridiculed in Western thought, and it is also known as a fascinating and frustrating argument, and simultaneously the best argument and the worst argument 
for the existence of God through natural theology. The famous, uh, or uh, Arthur Schopenhauer, who was a, an 18th century philosopher, called the ontological argument a charming joke. But William Lane Craig, again, the, the gentleman we just saw, we're going to see him again in a moment, uh, considers it to be both sound and good. I would say that the ontological argument is easy to misstate, misunderstand, caricature, and dismiss. Nevertheless, it is not easy to refute. Even the famous atheist, Bertrand Russell, the philosopher and mathematician skeptic of the previous century, he said that it's much easier to say the ontological argument is no good than to demonstrate what's wrong with it. Dinesh D'Souza, who's the president of Patrick Henry College, I believe, and also is a columnist. Some of you may have read his columns. Um, he has noted, quote, Anselm's argument seems like a theological rabbit pulled from a rhetorical top hat, yet when you ponder the logic, it is, it is surprisingly strong. And I would submit to you tonight that there's something, there seems to be something in this argument that pulls people inexorably back to considering its merit. In other words, the argument itself just won't die. We might die trying to figure it out or trying to refute it. But the argument itself just keeps cheating death. It's really fascinating. Anselm's argument went on to assume a variety of forms in, sub in subsequent generations um, being defended by such notable thinkers as Duns Scotus, who was a medieval Catholic the theologian, Descartes, the famous uh, French philosopher, Spinoza, Leibniz, Edwards, Jonathan Edwards, and many others. On the other hand, Aquinas and Immanuel Kant and, and others found it to be a little bit defective. But a number of prominent recent thinkers and philosophers such as Norman Malcolm, Charles Hartshorn, and Alvin Plantiga not only take the argument seriously, they consider it to be compelling, provided you clean up some of the missteps and, and the uh, oversights of, of the argument as previously articulated um, in the first thousand years of its use. Now, this is, in my view, a worthwhile enterprise. Um, a difficult one, but a worthwhile one. C.S. Lewis once said that good philosophy needs to exist if for no other reason than to answer bad philosophy. C.S. Lewis said good philosophy needs to exist if for no other reason than to answer bad philosophy. And I think he's right. Now, if the previous natural theology arguments we've presented so far required a certain amount of caffeine to engage successfully... This one requires a certain amount of caffeine and Tylenol because this one will give you a headache. But if you hang with it, if you discipline your mind, you might feel that inexorable pull to consider its merit as well because there really is something to this argument. Again, natural theology doesn't use the Bible. Why? Because many people that you will talk to don't accept the Bible and its authority. Now, let me, just, let me just say this. Um, I know that this kind of argumentation is not everybody's cup of tea. I know that. 
Pastor Jason knows that. But I would say two things to you. Number one, this is the last night that we will be doing abstract reasoning and theology without the Bible. This has its place, but this is the last night for it, okay? We're, we're, we're going to put the cookies on the lower shelf starting next week, all right? Hallelujah. <laughs> but it, it, at the very least, I hope you came to some appreciation that people who do believe in the trustworthiness of Scripture, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the existence of God, there are some people out there who have brains in their head, and that it's not a matter of checking your brains at the door when you come into church, Now, if all we've done is strengthen your already existing faith, well, then mission accomplished. If we've confused you, okay, fine. Uh, We all are at different places spiritually and intellectually and philosophically. But some of you, I will say this, number two, I have had people come to me over the years saying, Pastor Tim, I need more than what you're giving me on Sunday morning. I need more. I've heard all the stories. I've been through the Bible multiple times, but I need something a little bit more intellectually rigorous. Those people in our congregation are important too. And they need to be fed too. If you can't hang with it, don't don't try to find fault with it. It's just where different people are. And I am well aware of what the Bible says knowledge can and cannot accomplish. Knowledge puffs up. Love builds up. I'm well aware of that. I'm also aware of the fact that we are to love God with our minds. And for the Middle Ages, from from the year 1000 onward, uh, this is the type of argumentation that our ancestors in the faith did. So if for no other reason, just look at this as a history lesson. Historical theology and, 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 uh, and philosophy, okay? So take your Tylenol. Get your caffeine, buckle up, here we go. (laughs) Uh, The search for a silver bullet, there on page two. The search for, what I'm calling the search for a silver bullet. Uh, Philosophers love uh, to do word experiments or thought experiments. And we'll talk about that in a moment. But Anselm was after a single persuasive argument for the existence of God. In the Middle Ages, Anselm, and you see his years there, 1033 to 1109 A.D., made significant contributions to the fields of theology and philosophy. Even though he was appointed Archbishop of Canterbury, he spent much of his tenure in exile because he would not submit his church office to the whims of the kings of England. He believed in the concept of separation of church and state, and he didn't like the, 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 uh, the politicians telling him how to run his church. Nevertheless, Anselm spent three peaceful years in England at the end of his life. He was a precise thinker. And he's often regarded as the founder of scholasticism. Now, scholasticism was not a theology or philosophy. It was a way of learning. It was a period of time in which thinkers gave precise thought and rigorous thought to definitions and concepts and abstract thought and and trying to concretize and really justify some of the assumptions that we all make. I exist. How do you know? Well, that's a good question. How do you know? How do you know you're not having an illusion right now? (laughs) At the end of the night, you might be thinking, I just had an illusion. (laughs) Um, Okay, some of these abstract philosophical concepts, they began to want to nail them down. How do we know anything? And scholasticism was born. Many would say that Anselm was the first member of scholasticism. 
Uh, Believers are to love God with their minds, he said. Uh, Anselm believed that the Christian faith was rational and that natural theology was a legitimate field of study. That is, pondering uh, the God behind the natural world that he has made, Allah Psalm 19 and Romans 1, as we've seen those passages before. And he also thought that natural theology had an apologetic value. When he's arguing with people who are skeptics, critics of the Bible, don't believe the Bible, he still wanted to be able to engage them in conversation. Anselm also practiced revealed theology. He didn't didn't just spend all his time doing natural theology. He wrote his famous theological dialogue, Cur Deus Homo, which translates, Why the God-Man? In which he was trying to give a, a, a rationale or motivation for the incarnation. Why did Jesus become human? Why did the second person of the divine trinity become a human being? And why did he then die? Uh, in this particular work, Anselm trying to give uh, a rationale for the atonement. And he developed what we today call the satisfaction theory of the atonement, meaning that when Jesus died, he satisfied the wrath of his father against sin. Now, the atonement is more than that, but that is one critical component of it. And you find that first spelled out in a systematic way in Curdeus Homo, Why the God-Man. Now, in 1077, Anselm finished a treatise titled Monologium, Monologium, which is a a soliloquy in which he developed his case for the existence of God based on moral and cosmological arguments. You now know what the moral argument is and what the cosmological argument is. Well, you can first find some articulation of those things in Anselm in his work called Monologium. And yet, after he wrote that, he remained dissatisfied that not everybody was just saying, okay, I believe, I believe, I believe. He found that his own arguments were fairly complex, hard to follow, ironically, and he wanted to give a simple one. That's what the next work is all about. Uh, He had a desire to prove in one simple argument the existence of God and all of his greatness. And that's, that's what led to the completion in 1078 of his work, Proslogium, the next work, the work in which he developed his now famous and controversial ontological argument for the existence of God. Now, it's, it's just the height of irony to me that he was looking for one simply understood argument that over time has become one of the most complex and yet in some ways one of the most powerful. So uh, irony being what it is, let's dive in. Now, I, I said that philosophers love to do thought experiments uh, Pastor Jason called attention to one uh, a couple weeks ago. If a tree falls in the woods and nobody's there to hear it, does it make a sound? Remember that? That's a thought experiment that philosophers use to play out and spin out their concepts that they're developing. Well, Anselm was trying to build a reliable bridge uh, from thought experiment to reality. I'll explain what I mean by that in a moment. But this, what I'm giving you now, is his argument in a nutshell. The way that Anselm states his argument is, I think, extremely important because people sometimes shorten shorten his argument and in the process they miss the point of what he was saying. But here it is in a nutshell. His, His primary premise is this. God is that than which no greater can be conceived. God is that than which no greater can be conceived. Aliquid quo nihil maius cogitari posit. That's the Latin. God is that than which no greater 
can be conceived. Now, to that premise, if you can get your mind around that definition for God, to that premise, Anselm adds this. For God to be that being than which no greater can be conceived, he must exist in reality as well as in the mind. That is, he must have real being and not just hypothetical being, because if you're thinking merely of the idea of God, something that exists only in the mind, then you're not thinking of Anselm's God. In other words, Anselm would say that the God he is defining is the greatest being conceivable, and if you're conceiving of the greatest being conceivable as not existing, then we can come up with a greater being than the one you are conceiving, namely a being that actually is. Because existence is greater than non-existence, or non-being, or nothingness. And Anselm goes on to use the illustration of a painter who's about ready to paint a painting. When he goes to paint his painting, he has an idea of that picture that he's going to paint in his mind first. And it's in his mind, it's an idea, but it's not yet real until he paints it. And what Anselm is saying is that it's greater for that thing to be in reality than just in the mind. Let me give you Anselm in his own words. It is one thing for an object to be in the understanding and another to understand that object exists. When a painter first conceives of what he will afterwards perform, he has it in his understanding, but he does not yet understand it to be because he's not yet performed it. But after he's made the painting, he both has it in his understanding and he understands that it exists because he's made it. Anselm goes on, assuredly, that than which nothing greater can be conceived cannot exist in the understanding alone. For suppose it exists in the understanding alone, then it can be conceived to exist in reality which is greater. Therefore, if that than which nothing greater can be conceived exists in the understanding alone, the very being than which nothing greater can be conceived is one in which a greater being can be conceived. But obviously this is impossible. Hence, there is no doubt, says Anselm, that there exists a being than which nothing greater can be conceived and it exists both in the understanding and in reality. Now, if you followed that, you got Anselm's argument, the ontological argument. God is that than which no greater being can be conceived. And if I'm only conceiving him in the mind, then that's not the greatest being that can be conceived because the greatest being that can be conceived must exist in reality, not just in the mind, because it's, it's greater to exist in reality than in the mind. Are you, do you follow Anselm's argument? Even if you don't agree with it, even if you think it's ridiculous, do you follow what he's saying? All right, that's his thought experiment. That's his version of if the tree falls in the woods and no one's there to hear it, does it make a sound? That's his little thought experiment. Now, as he's trying to build this bridge from thought experiment to reality, my question is, is it a bridge to nowhere? 
to borrow a political, politically loaded phrase from today. Well, you've heard of Gilligan's Island. I want to introduce you to Guanalo's Island, okay? Anselm's chief antagonist was a monk by the name of Guanalo, who took up the case against this bold and novel argument for the existence of God in his work on behalf of the fool. Anybody have any idea why he might call it that? The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. And Anselm refers to that passage in his proslogium, in his work where he develops the ontological argument. Now, Guanalo believed in God. He just didn't think that Anselm made his case. And so uh, he said, if that's the best argument you can come up with, then I'm going to write on behalf of the fool. Guanalo objected that, here it is, here's, here's Guanalo's chief objection. Guanalo objected that conception of existence is not existence. Conception of existence is not existence. He took a hypothetical island as an example, noting that just because we can conceive of a greatest possible island, an island of which none, none greater than can be conceived, that does not mean that such an island exists in reality. Such an island, he said, would exist only if we had the power to conjure up reality just by conceiving it. On this point, Guanalo's logic seems pretty persuasive. Does conceiving of Santa Claus make Santa Claus real? Does conceiving of the tooth fairy make the tooth fairy real? Does conceiving of Martians make Martians real? Does conceiving of anything make that thing real? Obviously not. Every fictional person, place, or thing refutes Anselm's premise. Well, Anselm anticipated this objection, and he agreed that Guanalo was most assuredly right, but only to a point. Only about islands. Anselm agreed that just because we can conceive of the greatest possible island, it does not then follow that such an island exists. But Anselm would also argue, Anselm would also argue something else. That the greatest conceivable island is not the greatest conceivable being. And this is the point at which Anselm thought Guanalo's counterargument failed. Now, Anselm's definition of God, that than which no greater being can be conceived, contains within it the idea of a necessary being. That is, Anselm's God is a maximally great and eternally necessary being. And the concept of necessary being is greater than the concept of a contingent being. Now, let me define those terms. We, we actually talked about this a little bit in the cosmological argument. There's a distinction in philosophy between a necessary being and a contingent being. Don't be alarmed by the terms, just listen to the definition. A necessary being is a being that is underived and independent. In other words, it's uncaused. It's self-existent. It exists by the necessity of its own nature. It just is. That's different from a contingent being. A contingent being is a being that is derived and is dependent. In other words, it owes its existence to something else. 
It's dependent. Um, it's cause. It, it's, it has a cause. It's not self-existent. You see the difference between the two. A necessary being versus a contingent being. Now, Anselm's unexpressed but underlying assumption here is an issue that future philosophers would go on to argue about. Actually, Anselm started a fight. And a very good one and a very important one that later philosophers would take up more formally. And here's what it is. The logical necessity of a real being. Now, just kind of put that on hold. We'll come back to it. Anselm, when he formulated his ontological argument, started a fight that philosophers later would consider and argue about vociferously, and it has to do with the logical necessity of a real being. We'll come back to that. But at this point, we simply note, and and you can probably see where this is going, a truly self-existent being cannot not exist. Let me say that again. A truly necessary being cannot not exist. A truly self-existent being cannot not exist. Otherwise, it wouldn't be a necessary being. Now, we can imagine an island not existing because it's a contingent being. It owes its existence to something prior. It doesn't have to exist. We can even imagine the greatest conceivable island not existing because it too is a contingent being. It owes its existence to something prior. It doesn't have to exist. But Anselm would say, we cannot conceive of a necessary being as not being. Therefore, he would say, there is a vast difference between arguing for the existence of a being than which no greater can be conceived and arguing for the existence of an island than which no greater can be conceived because the former is a necessary being and the latter is not. Even if you want to think of a maximally great island, if the maximal greatness of that island ever makes it not contingent but necessary, it's no longer an island you're talking about. So Anselm would say. Now, this logic is why the modern-day parodies and caricatures of the ontological argument fail, even though they're popular and pervasive and highly comical. I grant you that. They're also highly prejudicial and just wrong. For example... Oh, based upon the ontological argument of Anselm, I could then, if I can conceive of a flying pig, then a flying pig must exist. If I can conceive of a maximally great pizza, then a maximally great pizza must necessarily exist. Or maybe you've heard this one. If I can conceive of the flying spaghetti monster, then the flying spaghetti monster must exist. Now, I have a little clip I want to show you about the the flying spaghetti monster. The flying spaghetti monster actually, well, shall we say, came into existence as part of the teleological debate. Uh, Take a look at William Lane Craig 
explain, I just love it. A, a trained philosopher is talking about the flying spaghetti monster. Take a look at this. A few years ago, when the... A few years ago, when the State Board of Education in the state of Kansas in the United States uh, was debating whether or not to adopt certain standards that would require intelligent design being taught along neo-Darwinian evolutionary theory in high school classrooms, um, a certain fellow made a sort of mockery of this by imagining that the flying spaghetti monster which is a sort of conglomeration of spaghetti with two meatball eyes, uh, was the one who's responsible for creating uh, life in the universe. And he used this as a parody to say that if intelligent design should be taught, then uh, the flying spaghetti monster has an equal claim to be taught in Kansas schools, which is obviously absurd. Now, in fact, this wasn't really a very good parody because the Proponents of intelligent design insist that they are not identifying the intelligent designer as God. They freely admit and insist that to be the intelligent designer of the cosmos does not require such properties as omniscience, omnipotence, omnibenevolence, and so forth. So that paradoxically, the flying spaghetti monster parody was actually an instance of intelligent design. It would be an intelligent design hypothesis, but one that would be unjustified because it would attribute all sorts of specific properties to the intelligent designer, which could not be inferred from the phenomena to be explained, namely biological complexity. So in fact, the parody was really rather misconceived despite the popularity that uh, the flying spaghetti monster uh, received on, on the Internet. Now, what I would argue is that there are arguments for the existence of God based on things like the origin of the universe, uh, the design of the fine-tuning of the initial conditions of the Big Bang, the moral argument for God's existence, which show that, in fact, the creator and designer of the universe cannot be a flying spaghetti monster. Uh, one reason, very simply, is a flying spaghetti monster is a physical object. It is a material object extended in space and time. And therefore, it cannot be the cause of the Big Bang because the cause of the Big Bang has to exist beyond space and time and be the creator of all matter and energy in the universe which come into existence at the initial cosmological singularity. So the cause of the universe has to be an immaterial, timeless, spaceless being which transcends the universe and brings it into existence. And therefore, the flying spaghetti monster hypothesis is simply inept as an explanation of the origin of the universe, not to speak of the fine-tuning of the laws of nature to which this flying spaghetti monster would himself be subject. So the, the parody is, is a silly one, and it does really nothing to undercut the standard arguments for a transcendent creator and designer of the universe which enable us to deduce several of the properties of this being which are theologically significant and consonant with the classical concept of God. A philosopher and a trained theologian talking about 
the flying spaghetti monster. I just think that's hilarious. Now, let, let's, uh, let's simplify this. I remember seeing one time, have you ever seen the fish, you know, the, the Christian fish that some people put on their bumper? I refuse to put that on my bumper because, you know, if I exceed the spin, speed limit um, accidentally, I don't want to be a bad witness. But you've seen then the parody on that, a fish with legs. A fish with legs. What's that saying? The cause of the universe and the design we find in the explanation of bi biological complexity is neo-Darwinism, evolution. But I, I remember when I saw that fish for the first time with legs and the, words, the word Darwin written inside of it, my first thought was, oh, how creative. Oh, how creative somebody had to think of it the reason it's funny is because there's intelligence behind it now back to this in his recent book god is not great how religion poisons everything christopher hitchens viciously mocks the ontological argument one can surmise that that's because he either doesn't understand it or he intentionally misrepresents it Hitchens falsely accuses Anselm of arguing that everything that can be conceived must exist. And I love how Dinesh D'Souza responded to that. He said this, this is emphatically not what Anselm is saying. He's not so foolish as to claim that if you can imagine a unicorn, therefore a unicorn must exist. Anselm's argument only applies to one special case. God is defined even by atheists as a being of the highest conceivable perfection. Now, such a being can exist only in the mind or in the mind and in reality as well. Anselm argues that it's greater or more perfect to exist both in the mind and in reality than to exist in the mind alone. Therefore, God must exist because otherwise he would not be a being of the highest conceivable perfection. As centuries of commentary on Anselm confirm, says D'Souza, this is an argument that seems hard to accept, and yet it is not very easy to refute. Hitchens certainly doesn't do it. The fact is, I, I mean, look, are, are you following the argument so far? I know it's abstract, but are you just kind of not if you're, okay, so far so good. It's going to get a little bit more complex in a second. But we, had, we readily admit something doesn't exist simply because you can conceive of it existing. We can conceive of the most perfect green elf existing, but it doesn't follow then that that green elf actually exists. But why do we know that? Why do we know that? We know that because we can also conceive of that green elf not existing. After all... If we could not conceive of that green elf not existing, we would have to admit that it really does exist. The fact is, we can conceive of anything either existing or not existing in some places, at some times, or in some way, as long as that thing is contingent or finite. But that is not the case if the being is necessary or infinite. Anselm would say that it's impossible to conceive of God as not existing. If you can conceive of God as not existing, then it's not God you are conceiving. The concept of God is the concept 
of a maximally great and eternally necessary being. Okay, let's push the pause button for a second. I wonder if you were living in the 11th century, if you would have agreed with Anselm, or if you would have been more with Guanalo. How many would have gone to the island? <laughs> How many think Anselm has a point? Uh, 50-50, I don't know, so you want to hear more. It's, uh, it's something, something's tantalizing at this point, but something also doesn't seem quite right. Later reflection would identify what that was on both counts, what's so tantalizing and what's wrong with it. So let's continue our journey through the Middle Ages. Two important questions emerge at this point. We're sort of a stalemate. Number one, is Anselm's argument logically fallacious because it begs the question? Now, we talked about begging the question before quick review. Begging the question is a type of logical fallacy in which the proposition to be proved is assumed in the premise. For example, I'll give you a, just a quick example here. Person one, Bob is annoyed right now. How do you know? Well, because he's angry. Okay, that's, that's begging the question. Now, not everyone agrees that Anselm's formulation begs the question, but many would argue that it at least comes close. And therefore, it's not a logically valid argument. Now, further adherence to the ontological argument took care to formulate the first premise so as not to be subject to the accusation of question begging. And if you're really interested in this argument, I, I give you some examples in Appendix 2, okay, about how future supporters and adherents to the ontological argument formulated their, their arguments with premises which don't violate the rules of logic, okay? So they're logically valid arguments. Now... That's actually a minor consideration. More devastating, though, to Anselm's argument is the second issue. Is the concept of God as necessary being truly justified? Or is this simply a definitional trick to get the necessary being out of the realm of mere idea and into the realm of actual reality to guarantee that the argument for God's existence succeeds. Let me say that again, because this is important. This is actually, what we're doing here is, you know how you can split an atom, and then you discover that there are subatomic particles. There's not just protons, neutrons, and electrons. There's actually subatomic particles, like quarks and other things. Um, what we're doing here is splitting a logical atom. We are really at the super, super, super microscopic level of logic here. So you're coming up against the limitations of human reasoning, but you're also discovering some important things. Here is the argument. Let me say this again. Is the concept of God as necessary being truly justified, or is this simply a definitional trick to get the necessary being out of the realm of mere idea and put it into the realm of actual reality? In other words... Is Anselm playing a game of verbal bait and switch or some sort of linguistic sleight of hand to make his case? In his book, Critique of Pure Reason, Immanuel Kant, a Prussian philosopher, uh, and by the way, this came out in 1776, this particular book. Something else I, I seem to remember from history happened in 1776. Our revolution. 
Let me assure you that as far as philosophy goes, this was a greater revolution than the American Revolution. It really was. If, you, if you're up on your philosophical history, this was, this was huge. But Immanuel Kant argues that the ontological argument does not get out of the realm of idea. As hard as Anselm tried to do it, he couldn't do it. Kant would contend, for example, that the concept of a perfect triangle implies merely the idea of the existence of a perfect triangle and nothing more. Likewise, the concept of a perfect being implies merely the idea of an existing perfect, an existing perfect being, and that's all. That's it. Does he have a point? Does he have a point? You can conceive of a maximally great this or that being all necessary, all that, but it's still an idea. That's what, that's what Kant is saying. While contending that Anselm's argument, as he formulated it, is vulnerable at this point, the Reformed theologian R.C. Sproul nevertheless takes issue with Kant's conclusion. You've heard of R.C. Sproul? Fascinating observation coming up here by Sproul. Sproul says this, the perfect triangle, that's the perfect triangle hypothesized by Kant in his thought experiment. The perfect triangle must have three perfect angles, but carries no necessity of real existence. The angles of the triangle are necessary, but not the being of the triangle. Nothing necessitates the existence of the perfect triangle. We can think of the non-existence of a perfect triangle with its three necessary angles, but we cannot think of the non-existence of a perfect being. If it is a perfect being, it is not non-existent. If one thinks of its non-existence, one is not thinking of a perfect being. No one can think of such a being not existing. Therefore, God, the perfect being, must exist, for we cannot think of his not existing. And Sproul goes on to say this, we yield by necessity to the impossibility of the contrary. In other words, this is the only thing which we cannot think of as existing merely as idea. Kant, says Sproul, Kant could not think God out of existence, nor can anyone else. So said R.C. Sproul. Now, the heart of Sproul's argument here is that God, when he says this, God is the only thing which we cannot think of as existing merely as an idea. If that contention succeeds, Sproul's conclusion is warranted. If that contention does not succeed, Sproul's contention is not warranted. Would you agree that that is the key issue right there? You have now gone as far as the microscope will take you into the subatomic realm of logic. That's the issue right there. I think Sproul frames it correctly. So what do we do? Have you ever been tantalized by Hamlet's speech? To be or not to be? <laughs> How many have had to read, read that? And, uh, isn't that just marvelous? Marvelous stuff. Shakespeare on the other side of the Middle Ages. To be or not to be. Anselm's foundation for future ontological bridge building. Now hang with me here. It's going to get crazy. This is where the roller coaster is at maximum G-force. But if you're buckled up, caffeinated, and you've taken your Tylenol, 
This is actually going to be fun. All right, here we go. In a somewhat undeveloped manner, Anselm had his finger on a profoundly important philosophical truth. And it's this. We cannot think of being without thinking of being as being. In other words, non-existent being is unthinkable. Non-existent islands are conceivable as a mental concept, but we cannot have a mental concept of a non-existent being because being, by definition, is. In other words, all right, here we go. Buckled up. Non-being cannot be. Nothing can exist. I'm sorry, nothing cannot exist. Being cannot not be. Something cannot not exist. The con- Here's why. The concepts of something and nothing are mutually exclusive reciprocal concepts. That is, they define one another. Something is defined as not nothing. And nothing is defined as not something. So, the concept of nothing existing is a false concept by definition. It's like trying to say there's such a thing as a married bachelor or a square circle. To say the words... Nothing exists is to speak nonsense because if nothing existed, it would not be nothing. It would be something. Therefore, nothing certainly cannot exist. But if that is the case, then that means that the reverse is also true. If nothing cannot be, then something must be. That is... Something exists necessarily. That's, okay, when you draw the line and add it all up, (laughs) that's it right there. Something exists necessarily. Now, I know you need a break at this point, and you probably need to exhale and laugh. So I want you to, I I love this guy. I want to show you a clip. It's called Ode to Nothing. A creative, bright young man wrote a poem called Ode to Nothing. And he's going to go through this slowly, but I want you to follow what he's saying. It's hysterical, but it's also profound. Take a look. Ode to Nothing. A poem about nothing. Yesterday I thought a thought. If thought you it could call. For t'was a thought of nothing. Which is not a thought at all. I was thinking. And not thinking. It's not an easy thing to do. I guess that I'm a genius. To think I never knew. Perhaps now I should study. Study nothing until I become an expert on the subject 
so that I will not be dumb. Then I can teach you nothing until nothing fills your brain. And since nothing is not offensive, no one would complain. Since I first thought of nothing, it's odd that it should be. It bothers me all the time. Yes, nothing worries me. So I guess I never worry then. No, I never have a care. Nothing has become my friend, one that's never there. When I have need of nothing, and nothing comes to me, it leaves me wanting something. But nothing comes for free. I should get paid for nothing. But no one sees its worth. But I'm really on to something. Now I'll stick to nothing first. It never occurred to me before that that which is defined as not existing does not exist, even in my mind. I never think of nothing being at any time or place or existing in any real way in any sort of case. Such a simple observation yet so simply profound, with astonishing implications that cannot be unsound. I always think of something, a being that persists, eternally and everywhere. It simply must exist. Just as it's nothing's nature and essence to not be, so something's nature is to exist, necessarily. There is no kind of real being that in it is not found, for it cannot at all not be. It's being, pure, unbound. All my thoughts are of this being, for nothing is never thought. This being to which my life is owed whether I believe or not. Can being ever once not be? Is all we know dismissed? Let us think that all is nothing if God might not exist. That's good stuff. I'd say his parents are getting their tuition's worth. <laughs> Anselm's ontological argument actually prompted subsequent thinkers to ponder the necessity of a real being. A being that is both ontologically necessary and logically necessary. And it took Aquinas, a little bit later than Anselm, to give that more philosophical force. Now, this is the last curve of the roller coaster. Get your hands up. <laughs> Here we go. I'm going to do this fast, and I assure you there's no tricks in this. 
Now you're watching. <laughs> now what you're about to see here is Aquinas going a step beyond Anselm in a very powerful way. Now, he said that God is an ontological God is an ontologically necessary being, which is almost a tautology, almost redundant to say it that way. But here's what he meant. A necessary being, as you know, we've already defined this, a necessary being is a being whose being is not dependent or derived or contingent. It's self-existence. It's self-existent. It's infinite. It's eternal. It's, um, it's a difference between a human being and a supreme being. The difference between a human being and a supreme being, as conceived by Anselm, is a difference in being. A human being, you have to eat, you have to sleep, uh, you change over time. Uh, the God that is greater, than, the, the God than which nothing greater can be conceived, none of that's true of that God. There's a, there's a vast difference in being here. Um, you might have heard the story of two children playing and, and they got into a philosophical discussion. Um, who made that tree? Well, um, uh, the, the, uh, that tree came from a seed. Well, where did the seed come from? That seed came from a... And they keep going back and back and back as far as they possibly go. And, and, and they, get, they finally get, well, who made, who made the very first seed? God made the very first. Well, who made God? And the one child says to the other, well, God made himself. That child, we might think, well, there's something cute about that, but that's absurd. God did not make himself. Classical theism has never asserted that God made himself. Things cannot make themselves. Why not? We've been through this before. Let's do it again. We, we talked about this in the cosmological argument. Quick repeat. For something to make itself, that thing would have had to predate itself. It would have to be before it was. In other words, it would have to be and not be at the same time and in the same relationship. Even God cannot be and not be at the same time. Even God cannot bring himself into existence out of nothing. God, by definition, is uncaused and self-existent. In other words, God is an ontologically necessary being. Why? Because at some point in tracing back our causal links in this world, we will inevitably come to that which is uncaused, that which has the power of being in and of itself. Not only that, we cannot go back infinitely in our tracing of causal links. Otherwise, we would be left with an infinite regress of causes, in which case we never would have gotten to the present moment to think about anything. So when we get back to that which is uncaused, that which has the power of being in and of itself, it cannot not be. That is, its being is of ontological necessity. That's what Aquinas was saying. An ontologically necessary being is a being that cannot not be. Now, Aquinas further argued that it is logically necessary that there be an ontologically necessary being. How come? Well, because without an ontologically necessary being, nothing could possibly be. Now, that presupposes, of course, that something exists. And that is a point that if you don't like where this argument winds up, you have to dispute. How do we know something exists? 
Remember I said about an hour ago, that's a philosophical proposition that philosophers debate and try to demonstrate and prove, and they find themselves falling all over themselves in doing it. You know how Descartes got there, I think. Therefore, I am. I'll tell you later how he got to that. But just know that that is something, that's the issue right there. Right here it is. This presupposes that something exists. In other words, that there is something rather than nothing. Can we agree there is something rather than nothing? Okay. If you want to say it's all an illusion, as some psychedelic people do, you then have to ask, who's having the illusion? Right? Okay. If anything exists now, then there never could have been a time when there was absolutely nothing. Why not? Because if ever there was a time when there was absolutely nothing, what could possibly be right now? Absolutely nothing. But why? Because if there was ever a time when there was absolutely nothing and now there is something, then that something would have had to come into existence out of nothing and by its own power. But it's rationally impossible for something to come into existence out of nothing and by its own power. Nothingness has no properties at all and therefore no potentialities. Nothingness is devoid of all capabilities and causal power. This is why something cannot come into being from nothing. Anything can only come into being from something. Therefore, if something is here now, then logic demands that something somewhere has this power of being within itself or nothing could possibly be. Did you follow that? God bless you. I'm not sure I did. No, I, I, <laughs> I've, been trying to, I've been trying to formulate this for the last couple of weeks. Jason said, I want the moral argument. I said, you snot. That means I get this one. <laughs> Back to Anselm. If non-being cannot be, then it cannot be conceived. That is, it cannot be thought. This means that we cannot conceive of non-being possibly being at any time or any place or in any reality or in any way whatsoever. Likewise, we cannot conceive of being possibly not being at any time or any place or in any reality or in any way whatsoever. Therefore, something must be conceived to exist at all times, in all places, all realities. It cannot be conceived to not exist at all in any way whatsoever. It would have to be infinite being, pure, unlimited being. So it is indeed the greatest conceivable being and its non-being that is its non-existence is inconceivable therefore we have no choice but to conclude that the greatest conceivable being really exists due to the impossibility of conceiving that it might not exist how do we know god exists anselm would say if anything exists then something exists necessarily and that necessary being, that being that has being within itself, is what the scriptures call God. Now, I want to skip for a moment the bridge out section. That's just that's one, other, um, one other argument. It's a minor argument. It's easily refuted. You can check it out later. 
I want to show you one more clip, which kind of summarizes a thousand years of reflection on this argument, and then I'll give you my conclusion, my assessment of this argument, okay? When they speak of God, people have traditionally meant a personal being, the most perfect one possible, perfect in power, knowledge, and in morality. The first and foremost goal of the arguments is to prove that this God exists, and secondly, to prove that he does indeed possess these attributes of perfection. The ontological argument is unique in that you can pinpoint its origin in a single person, uh, uh, St. Anselm of Canterbury. In the 11th century, St. Anselm argued that God's existence is implicit in the idea of God itself. So whoever asserts that God does not exist has said something logically contradictory, like saying that five plus five equals seven. This argument is known as the ontological argument. The fool said in his heart, there is no God. But certainly that same fool, having heard what I just said, something greater than which cannot be thought, understands what he heard. And what he understands is in his thought. But it cannot exist only in thought. For if it exists only in thought, it could also be thought of as existing in reality as well, which is greater. On the face of it, uh, a thing is greater if it exists than if it doesn't, because if it doesn't exist, it can't do much of anything. Um, uh, so, uh, think, fool, of the greatest possible being, list the attributes, and if you don't include existence on that list, I'll point out to you that you forgot one. And then once you see that it's on that list, you see that the very idea of such a being entails that this being exists. Now, how, how good an argument is that? I think in that form, it, it isn't particularly uh, good. Anselm's argument assumes that existence is a characteristic of perfection. The Prussian philosopher Immanuel Kant objected to this assumption, asserting that existence is not a predicate. He used the idea of 100 coins to make his point. There's no real difference between the idea of a pile of 100 coins and the idea of an existing pile of 100 coins. Each is the idea of a pile worth the same amount, and adding existence to the one doesn't make it the idea of a better kind of thing. If there were a pile of 100 coins and an existing pile of 100 coins, they would be worth exactly the same amount. Existence, said Kant, is not a perfection, but merely an affirmation of what is. His fundamental point was, we can never prove existence of anything from concepts alone. We can never um, gain uh, knowledge just on the basis of, uh, of logical analysis. We're always going to need additional 
and ultimately sensory inputs into a logical framework. While Kant effectively rebutted Anselm's claim that existence is a perfection, philosophers like Charles Hartshorn, Norman Malcolm, and Alvin Plantinga breathed new life into the ontological argument in the 20th century. They asserted that while existence may not be a perfection, surely necessary existence is a perfection. Something that exists necessarily is greater than something that exists merely contingently, that is, dependent on or conditioned by something else. God, then, is the being that couldn't possibly not exist. It's possible that there be a being in which it's not possible that there be a greater. But a being uh, in which it's not possible that there be a greater would be one that was essentially omniscient, omnipotent, and wholly good, and furthermore, necessarily existent. Well, if it's possible that there be a being like that, it follows by virtue of a certain theorem from modal logic, it follows that there actually is such a being. Um, so if you're, if you're prepared to say even it's possible that there be such a being, you're really committed to saying, you're committed to saying that there is such a being unless you want to reject this part of modal logic, which most people uh, do not want to reject. For all of this wrangling we've done tonight, I'll give it to you as I see it. In my view, Anselm's basic intuition was correct. God is that than which no greater can be conceived. His intuition and corresponding argumentation, however, fell somewhat short of the absolute proof that he was looking for to establish the existence of God by means of natural theology. Sproul notes again, Anselm remains in the realm of hypothetical being. It is still the being which is hypothetically the notion of existence, which is greater than the hypothetically non-existent being. All this is true enough, but still hypothetical, says Sproul. Nevertheless, Anselm's intuition and corresponding argumentation forced future thinkers to ponder the logical necessity of real being. And that was no small accomplishment. Sproul again observes, When one adds the simple observation that the necessary proof of anything is the inability to think of its non-existence, this establishes the necessary existence of the perfect being. Anselm may have intended this, but he did not expressly state it. He thus left himself open to the criticism that he had only proved the necessary existence of a mere idea. When one adds that Anselm's being, than which none greater can be conceived, cannot be thought to not exist, he has then proven the actual necessary real existence of that being. And I think Sproul is absolutely right. As we noted earlier, I'll just throw this in as a little dig here at the end. <laughs> Arthur Schopenhauer once called the ontological argument a charming joke. But one is left wondering, have we found God without realizing it? Does realizing the possibility prove the reality? Do we know that there's a God simply because we can talk about the possibility of finding him? Would it be possible for us to even suppose or hypothesize his existence if he did not really exist? Does the supposition of a possible God require an actual God? If so, then we've already found him. Or could, we couldn't talk about the possibility of finding him. Maybe the joke's on us. 
Now, ultimately, I would say this. God's existence is not established because we have a conception of his existence. Anselm did not mean to suggest that. God's existence is established because we cannot not have a conception of his existence. In other words, God is the being that cannot not be conceived. If there is any being that cannot be thought to not exist, then it must exist in reality. And to deny this, to deny this one would have to contradict himself by claiming that he's able to conceive of what he admits cannot be conceived. There's no greater proof of anything in the realm of philosophy than if we're not able to conceive of its non-existence. And so for this reason... God exists. Sproul observes, the impossibility of the contrary when applied to the existence of God is a powerful argument. Therefore, God really is that than which no greater can be conceived. It's a God who reveals himself in Exodus 3 at the burning bush. You remember the story, Moses, take off your shoes for the place... You're standing as holy ground. Go tell Pharaoh, let my people go. Moses objects. Wait a minute. Moses said to God, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to him? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say to the people of Israel, I am has sent me, has sent me to you. Exodus 3, 13 and 14. Yahweh, I am. I exist. I am real. I am being. Jesus, if God is still just an idea, Jesus kind of blew it apart when the idea came into reality, our reality, Jesus said to them, John eight fifty eight. before Abraham was, I am. Fascinating, don't you think? I am. Ego, eimi, that's from the Greek verb, antos. The Greek noun, antos, being. And when Paul was arguing with a bunch of Skeptics in Athens. He quotes their own poets who had sense enough to exist, uh, to, to acknowledge the existence of a real being. He said this, in him, in God, we live and move and have our being. Let me just call attention to Appendix 1 and you can go home and do your homework. In Acts 17, the Apostle Paul, here's the full text of Paul arguing with the Athenians. And I want you to notice some things as you read this text. I want you to notice Paul's use of reason in contending for the existence of God. That is, he's doing natural theology here to a point. He knows its limitations. Notice Paul's engagement with secular philosophers and their condescending treatment of him. Yes, there was a flying spaghetti monster back then, too. Notice Paul's attempt to find common ground as a starting point from which he can launch his case. 
Notice Paul's use of a cosmological argument, though we don't have the full text of his argument. He's using a cosmological argument. Notice Paul's assumption that God is self-existent and necessary. Notice Paul's affirmation that God is the ultimate cause of the universe and of humanity. Notice Paul's assertion that the present arrangement of humanity is ordered by God to enable belief. You'll find that in this text. Notice Paul's inference that humanity's existence is contingent upon deity's prior existence. Notice Paul's citation of non-specifically Christian sources to bolster his Christian argument. It's fascinating. As some of your own poets have said, in him we live and move and have our being and we are his offspring. And notice Paul's acceptance of the secular poet's intuitions about ontological realities. Okay. Um, I have brought the Tylenol. If you need one, you can have one. If you need two, you can have two. But I could use a few myself. <laughs> All right, I'm done. Uh, questions, comments, um, considerations, irritations, arguments. Uh, I, I'm interested in, uh, this is a little bit different from what we usually do, but this is, um, this is the ontological argument. Thoughts, questions? Yeah, sure. Um, let's put it this way. Um, can you prove anything? I'll just leave God out of it for a second. Not that you can do that. But uh, can you prove the existence of anything from the concept of the thing alone? Philosophers play with that. Um, and does the mere fact that you've ascribed certain properties to a being, in, by definitionally so, have you then gotten the thing out of the realm of idea into the realm of necessity? Anselm didn't do that. I'm freely admitting that here. Aquinas, I think, was better at that when he argued that something exists. By the way, do you know the, the I think, therefore, I am? Um, Rene Descartes, who had his own form of the ontological argument. Descartes started, and, and here's another thought experiment. Why, why do people do this? I guess they get paid for, you know, just thinking. He said, I, I'm, I doubt everything. Descartes said, I doubt everything. I, I'm going to doubt everything I can possibly think of to see if we can prove the existence of anything. How do you know you exist? Do you exist? Descartes was on this quest. He said this, I doubt the existence of God. I doubt the authority of Scripture. I doubt that that tree exists. I doubt that you exist. He doubted everything he could think to exist, but he stumbled at one point. He couldn't doubt that he was doubting. So he said to himself, self, what is doubt? It's a form of thinking, he said. Doubting is a form of thinking. Well, thinking requires a thinker. I must be that thinker who's thinking. I may not be thinking rationally. I may not be thinking well. I may not be thinking logically. But I'm thinking, therefore, I am. Kogeta ergo sum. I think, therefore, 
I am. I don't know about you. I can't vouch for your existence, but I just proved I'm here. Way to go. Congratulations, Descartes. We all just kind of took that one on faith. John Calvin begins his Institutes of the Christian Religion, ironically, by talking about this very thing. You can't have knowledge of God without knowledge of self, and you can't have knowledge of self without knowledge of God. <laughs> he was saying something so beautifully profound in that opening section of the Institutes. Marvelous. You could argue, and we, we did this before, you could, well, I'm just having an illusion. It's fascinating. We're all having the same one, aren't we? And doesn't, doesn't having an illusion require someone having the illusion? You see, you, you can just, you, you keep going back and back and back and back. At some point, reality kicks in. Well, we're all having a dream. Doesn't that require a dreamer? C.S. Lewis said, we need good philosophy if for no other reason than to combat bad philosophy. And I thank God for those philosophers who are doing good philosophy. At the end of the day, folks, what's it say in Romans? Every mouth will be stopped and this nonsense is going to be over. Can you not take what you recognize intuitively to be the case? Something can't come from nothing. But here we all are as something. How? This is why Paul says in Romans 1, no, but we are all without excuse. So that's where this ceases to be an intellectual game of philosophical gymnastics to an issue of morality. What are you going to do as a steward of the, the mysteries of God? What are you going to do with the knowledge and the light he's given? I don't know if we answered your question, but the, the question's a profound one. Do we just go around and around and around? You will go around and around and around and around if you don't have a starting point. Everyone has at least one presupposition. Everyone has at least one starting point. Even Descartes. And fascinatingly, from that, Descartes did believe in God. And he had his own form of the ontological argument. I've included it in the, the appendix. So, um, that's enough for one night, don't you think? <laughs> we'll get to Christian evidences next time, all right? And we'll, uh, we'll come back to terra firma. God bless you all. He who endures to the end will be saved. <laughs>